This is Airing Pain, the programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition has been supported by a grant from the Moffat Charitable Trust and assistance given by the Scottish Government. There is a link between deprivation and ill health, and there is an inequality, therefore, between the non-deprived and the deprived, for lack of a better description. People come from all over the world, unfortunately, to study Glasgow because of the Glasgow effect, from where the leafy suburbs in the west around the university and the east end where my grandmother lived all her life and where my mother was born, there's a mortality inequality of 15 years in men and even longer in women. And that happens in a, in a space of four or five miles. People living with disabilities or long-term conditions experience a 50% higher rate of unemployment compared to the rest of the population. In the last edition of Airing Pain, we looked at employment, or rather unemployment issues, faced by people with chronic pain. In this edition, I want to find out whether financial hardship from unemployment or living in areas of deprivation affect the treatment those living with long-term conditions receive. Professor Jason Leach is Clinical Director of the Healthcare Quality Unit of NHS Scotland. So, if you have more money, do you get better treatment? Absolutely not. I don't believe if you have more money, you get better treatment. I do believe, and I think there's very good evidence, that the poorer you are, the harder it is for you to access care and the more challenging, therefore, your long-term condition can be. Now, that's a general statement. There are examples of people at either end of that spectrum who are the opposite of those extremes. Of course there are. But generally speaking, if you have a long-term condition, diabetes, asthma, chronic pain, any, any of these, and if, remember, going forward now, most people have more than one. It's now more common to have two chronic conditions than one chronic condition. So that changes the whole face of the way we deliver the care. If you have a chronic condition and you are poor, you are likely to be treated later, you are likely to struggle more, and your treatment is likely to be less effective. Now, that's not universal, so we shouldn't condemn all of that, but there are multiple reasons for that, some of which are systems-based inside our delivery, and some of which are based inside the society. So, people on low incomes, what are the barriers for them getting good care? I'm conscious of generalising, and that's a very, very dangerous thing to do in healthcare, because there'll be people listening to you who say, I'm poor and I'm perfectly adequately treated and I'm perfectly able to access care. In general terms, people who are poor often have long-term anxieties about other things in their lives, chaotic lifestyles, families, housing that might be damp, difficulty with green space around where they live, schools, everything else that's going on in their chaotic lives in general terms. And that makes access to ordered, systemised healthcare challenging. I could also point to middle-class households with drug-addicted teenagers, with broken homes, with other general social issues where those access issues are, are very common as well. So don't presume poor means bad treatment. That is not what we're saying. But inequalities, there is no question that, it, particularly in our urban centres, Glasgow is the classic example, in our urban centres, there are morbidity and mortality challenges as you get poorer. In Glasgow, that generally means as you move east in the city, you die younger. And we've, we've known that for decades. Is education one of the major issues? 
education of what? Edu- ed- education, education of... in terms of what is available health-wise. Yes, but it's a very weak intervention. So just going to the community and teaching them is a very, very but that's not just weak, education, weak intervention. Education isn't just teaching. It's, it's having the ability to find stuff. It's libraries. It's information in clinics and things like that. Anything that increases the ability of a user of, with a long-term condition like chronic pain to access appropriate services for them in their locality is a good thing. So if that is about using the community's own assets, such as the shops in the street, the banks, the pubs, I don't care. Anything that increases the availability of, of local community assets to be able to help those with challenging conditions is a good thing. The, the classic example that comes to my mind is Alice, which is fundamentally a local resource, a collection of local elements which are then available to the general practitioners to direct individuals to. And it's a directory. It effectively says there's a yoga class at four o'clock in that community centre. There's a prescribing help thing that helps you with chronic medication services in this pharmacy on Tuesdays at eight in the morning or, or whatever. And some of those local community assets are not known to the healthcare professionals, never mind to the communities. And any way of making that more accessible has got to be a good thing. Jason Leach and ALICE stands for a local information system in Scotland. Kieran McGee was an academic high flyer until chronic pain put an end to all aspirations of a successful career. He lives in the former steel town of Motherwell near Glasgow with his three-year-old daughter and wife Anne-Marie. It's chronic Chronic, yeah, pain. abdominal pain. It's, it's in the liver region. Yeah, it's, it's kind of just above liver. They think it's probably nerve pain of some yeah. description, probably caused by some damage from a previous illness. And in add to that, we now have a, a lovely neurological disorder, wreaking havoc. So it effectively means that the right-hand side of his brain is no longer sending signals to the left-hand side of his body, so he's intermittently so paralysed. getting a, a standard migraine where you have a abject pain, it just shuts off the muscles. Stop sending signals to the body. You worked full-time. Oh, I worked full-time. You went to university. I, I was on a career trajectory. You were doing a PhD. I was, yeah, effectively had a, a whole career planned in front of me, and I still have. A wonderful family. Anne-Marie, you're Kieran's wife. Are you the breadwinner of the house? I was until the start of last year. And uh, the opportunity presented itself for me to leave employment and it had become apparent at that point that it was probably a good decision to make for Kieran's sake. Do you miss work? Yes. So one illness has cost two careers? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Can you see yourself getting back to work? Unless Kieran's condition improves dramatically, which we've been told not to expect that to happen, I think I'm going to be probably a full-time mum and a full-time carer. Have you had any help in getting back to work or freeing yourself up a little bit? No. We haven't certainly haven't come across services that as yet are, are prepared to help us out on a day-to-day basis. I went for an interview with the employment support people and they were offering very basic get-you-back-into-work courses that, to be perfectly honest, given the job that I was doing and the career that I did have, seemed like 
are you actually kidding me here? You know, that's aimed at getting somebody back into a job that you'd be looking at earning barely minimum wage. I was earning a lot more than that. You're actually kidding me on here. <laughs> you know, I know how to write. I know how to put a CV together. I don't need educating on English or, or maths. And that was pretty much all you were wanting to offer me. Did you do that course? No. Has anybody taken into account what you were capable of? I mean, you know, how high you could fly if it they came across as very pleasant, but the only thing that they were particularly interested in was basically not having an additional name on a book that said this person is effectively a benefit claimant. That's pretty much all they're interested in. You don't get a choice when you have to be a full-time carer. You need to be financially supported, but you also need services in place that allow you time out. Whether that's somebody coming into the house to make a meal for severely disabled people, or if it is just simply offering access into intelligent education, education or courses that are going to, you know, work your brain. It seems incredibly judgmental to assume that you're out of work, therefore you can't count and you can't write. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think everything is aimed at the lowest common denominator which sadly writes off probably 95% of those who are out of work because they have to look after somebody. What sort of process of paperwork or interviews, whatever, did you go through to get any grant that you have? Lots and lots of, of filling out forums. ESA was the first one, I think. Was yeah, Employment Support Alliance was the first one. And then we had to reapply as a couple for ESA. And then PIP... The paperwork, the questions, they are so... They're literally pages and pages and pages and they don't always make sense. Uh, I'm university to educate with like two degrees and a PhD. And we ended up going to um, Citizens Advice. We no, saw it initially. The, it, was the, it wasn't Citizens Advice, it was, was it? the... Attached to the Social Work Department for the PIP one because it was so horrific and we got referred to them and they, they then went through the form with us and they then came out to the house and assessed and, and helped us to say, well, actually, you need help. They were brilliant. It took us seven months to get all of the benefits that we were entitled to put into place. I dread to think how other people would have coped if they didn't have something as a net because you would be potentially no income, no benefits, no housing benefit, no nothing. And it did, it took seven months from the point of ESA being awarded to the final PIP awardment being made. And I've heard that in some cases, um, PIP took 12 months to put in place. It's a damning indictment on the way that anyone with a disability is treated in this country right now. It is a damning indictment. PIP is the Personal Independence Payment and there's information on how to get help with PIP applications in edition 62 of Airing Pain. You can download that and all editions from the Pain Concern website, which is painconcern.org.uk. Now, Kieran McGee's career was over before it started, but many people with chronic pain are able to have fulfilling careers. Angela O'Neill's had chronic pain for many years. She was a nurse until two years ago, 
when managing her condition whilst doing a demanding job became impossible. But, as you'll hear, she shares her frustrations of the system with the McGee's and many others in the same situation. I tried to keep working as long as possible. I'd work part-time. I changed my job from being a clinical nurse sister on a busy intensive care unit to clinical nurse teacher, which meant I was working shortened days and I was managing. But in the end, I was just pushing on and not enjoying the rest of my life. I managed my work, but by the time the weekend came, I was just exhausted. Um, I was sleeping all weekend and getting up for work again on the, the Monday. I worked alternate days, so I was sleeping on the days in between. Um, I was absolutely exhausted. I was having problems with my memory, which was very difficult when teaching. Sometimes having fogs come over me. I don't know whether this was due to the medication or the, the disease process. I began to see that I couldn't do the job that I was supposed to be doing, and I, I thought I was in a dangerous position looking after people's small children. So I decided that it was time to, to retire from my, my work, my job. It was the hardest decision of my life. Nursing was me, and I found it very difficult to think that I wasn't going to be a nurse anymore. I kept my registration till just recently because I always thought there might be a chance that I would go back. I thought I would miss it so much. Did you have to go through all the processes, the assessment processes? No, fortunately, because I'd been nursing for so long that I could actually retire at 55, so it, it was natural retirement. I didn't retire on ill health, so uh, I didn't have to go through that process, which would have been probably a different decision if I had to. What do you mean? I'd been off work coming up to six months. I had to sign on and go to the job centre and have interviews and I had to write a CV even though I was attending, going back to my job, back to my own work, I was asked to attend to make a CV. I'd been in the same job for 37 years and never had a CV. I didn't really understand why I needed to have a CV when I was going back to my own job at the time. And then I had to attend an interview in Glasgow which was very intimidating. It was a medical by somebody that didn't speak very good English. It was absolutely awful. And at the end of it, they said that I was fit to work. I knew that I was fit to work, but I wasn't fit to do the job that I had been doing. And I was waiting to get my health back following surgery so that I could return to work. So having all these interviews was very distressing. So I think if I had had to go through that process again, it might have been a difficult decision. Did you feel in some ways that you were a grey person, a, a box on a tick sheet, if you like? Oh, definitely. I had to keep attending the job centre, even though I've got a job. The works and pensions office, um, places that I've never been before. It was just so difficult and not feeling well and having to go through that. It was very difficult for my husband as well, who took me and he, he was very angry. He felt intimidated. And, he, and when I came out sobbing, I'm not a person that cries very easily, and I came out of the office absolutely sobbing, he just was really upset and frustrated by the whole process. That's Angela O'Neill. I'll just remind you, as always, that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances, 
and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now, if, as has been stated, there is a link between deprivation and ill health, as in the so-called Glasgow effect, could third sector organisations, that is charities like Pain Concern in fact, help break that link? Here's Clinical Director of the Healthcare Quality Unit of NHS Scotland, Jason Leach, again. I am a big supporter of the third sector. I spend quite a lot of my time visiting third sector organisations and and trying to boost that community asset approach inside those local communities. But there's a challenge, and the challenge is variation in delivery. So in Glasgow, the last time I checked, there were 86 organisations dealing with addiction. Now, they're all very worthy. I know them well, some of them quite well. I have a personal family connection to the Glasgow City Mission, for instance, which deals with homeless people, and some of whom are addicts. So they, that's a very worthy thing. The Salvation Army is around the corner, again, dealing with homeless, dealing with addiction. And 86 of those organisations, that needs some level of coordination. And I think the Scottish Government and the mainstream healthcare system has to be that coordinator, or we're going to end up with... I was going to say chaos, that's not quite what I mean. We're going to end up with, with variation in the delivery for different pieces of the society and different geographies, and that, that can't be good. I'm really, really pleased that things like the Glasgow City Mission exists. They're really important for a community, and they can help us, because we can't, the health service can't do it all. It's impossible. Somebody estimates the, the free care bill that we don't pay for as billions of pounds, so, so we require that to exist. But my concern is that it sometimes feels a little uncoordinated. It seems to me that with 86 different organisations, each clambering for the same penny, for the same pound, it needs somebody to bring everything together. So that would be the other extreme. So one extreme is let all 86 flowers bloom and do as you please. The other is, no, no, we'll have one thing. We'll bring them all in, we'll tell them all how it is, and we'll make them all sign a memorandum of understanding and we'll do it our way. Neither extreme is correct. The local people understand the local context, they understand the community in which they're working, and they should be allowed to do that. But just letting all the flowers bloom mean that Govan will get a different service from Springburn, and we, we should avoid that if we possibly can. So it's a balance, and the leadership element from the Scottish Government is that we should understand that context as best we can, we should fund it appropriately, we should fund it fairly, but allow the local contexts to build their own services. So that would be allowing the community to decide what, what is it we need in this geography. Is it a homeless? Is it a soup kitchen? Is it a chronic pain thing? Is it a yoga class? And that, that should be able to be locally adapted with an overall leadership frame from us that says assets are important, quality is important, patient safety is important, long-term conditions are important. So really you want to rubber stamp the appropriateness of what's going on but should you be actively involved in, well, for want of a better word, poking your nose in? The Scottish Government and the National Health Service and the integrated social care, or the increasingly integrated social care system should, should at some level take responsibility for the vision, the aim, the mission. The, if we can't do that in a country of our size, I'm not sure what we're for. So that's why we have one system. But I'm very comfortable with then allowing the communities. That's giving power away, remember, that's risky giving power away to the communities to, to build the services that they require. So let's take chronic pain as an interesting example. Not many people need residential chronic pain services in an inpatient setting. Some people do, but it's a very small number. So we nationally should decide how we're going to do that, and that's what we've done recently. We've decided on a national residential chronic pain centre. So that's the national thing. 
I and others like me can make those kind of decisions. As that chronic pain is in the community, as the severity of it is variable, much of that will have to be delivered locally. I, I can't design each of those local services. That's impossible. So those local services have to be designed by the users, by the clinical staff, by the third sector, w within those local communities. Now, that's quite difficult because you can't have board meetings for each of those elements. So you have to find a way of allowing those community assets to grow in a reasonable way. You have to fund them if you can appropriately and allow some kind of umbrella organisation like yours or like the Alliance or to provide some kind of accountability and governance for that process. That's Jason Leach. The Alliance he referred to is the Health and Social Care Alliance Scotland. My name's Andrew Strong. I'm Policy and Information Manager at the Health and Social Care Alliance Scotland, uh, which is a membership organisation of uh, 1,500 members, um, third sector organisations working in health and social care, people with long-term conditions and disabled people, and professional associates working in health and social care, all to a shared vision of helping people with long-term conditions, supporting them to achieve their right to live well. What we've got in Scotland is a lot of areas of multiple deprivation where people live under extreme poverty in some circumstances and there is a thing called the inverse care law where the type of health support that you get in those areas is disproportionate to the amount of need. And I think actually what we need to do is start to target some resource into those types of areas. Our Deep End project, the Links Worker, National Links Worker project, is working in seven areas of Glasgow at the moment, and that is a dedicated resource in seven GP practices to make those kind of connections into the local community, find out what types of support there are in areas like Drum Chapel and areas like Govan, to really you know, emphasise the point that people need that little bit of extra support to find out what is thriving in their local community and to find out the kind of keys to living in a healthier way. Lots of people are going to the GP in those in those types of circumstances and ending up, you know, not getting the types of support that they want because the GP is very, very busy. It's not set up at the moment to be that type of support into the local community. But actually, if you turn that on its head and think, well, this can be a hub for accessing those types of support, you get a lot better outcome for, for the money that you put into it, in, in my opinion. Uh, and I think that National Links Worker Programme is coming out with some fantastic examples of changing people's lives as a result. We've heard examples of people whose uh, families have died or um, people who've had suicidal thoughts, who've had a bit of additional support through the Links Worker Programme, through finding things in the local community that are there to help people, particularly with mental health problems. The Alliance is running an advocacy support programme at the moment in four areas. It's just a pilot project, but the Links Worker Programme is working with that advocacy support project as well to give people a, a trained advocate in benefits assessments to actually go to the assessment with them to explain what the assessment's going to be like and people want that explanation and, and that understanding that better that better type of approach which understands what they actually need. Andrew Strong, Policy and Information Manager at the Health and Social Care Alliance Scotland. Now my skills, my strength, my right to work is a project to reduce inequality, increase participation and encourage both employers and employees to discuss openly how to create and maintain successful and sustainable employment for a person with a long-term condition or an unpaid carer. 
Louise Copeland is the Employability Development Officer at the Alliance, and she has responsibility for this project. I have an example from the, the past. It was a woman who suffered from MS, and working in employment, the role she was in was support work out and about in the community, and it wasn't her job that was causing her any, any problems. It was a transport. She was using public transport from seeing client A and then back onto public transport to see client B and she felt that it was that that was causing her anxiety and stress because bus drivers weren't waiting until she was fully seated on the bus. It was the stress of travelling and she managed to contact Access to Work herself and they provided funding to for a taxi service to be provided. Um, that's just one example but a lot of people think when they think of what access to work could provide in a workplace, they're thinking about chairs and computers and equipment. But it's a lot more than that. It's about giving people transport, flexibility, as well as the equipment and everything else they might need to complete their role successfully. From success stories, the other side of that is employers being frightened to employ people with disabilities because they think it's going to cost them an absolute fortune. When we created the campaign employers that we contacted saw it as a recruitment issue but it's not as it's an employment issue 40 percent of people in scotland live with a long-term conditions the majority of those will be in the working age bracket so it's not about recruiting it's actually supporting the employees you already have who will possibly in the future get a condition or be diagnosed with a condition or several conditions or their home circumstances might change where they become an unpaid carer and it's not about recruitment, it's actually looking at the workforce that is already out there. You know, in 2020, when we're looking at so many more carers and people with diagnosed conditions, it's going to be a real problem if people aren't proactive in changing their mindset and what employers should provide. So your job is to sort that out now? We have created a campaign that has got personal stories. Um, it's looking at the person with the condition and their employer and what support they have. The jobs are ranging from third sector organisations to um, the private sector and we have NHS, Ayrshire and Arran on board by providing their case studies as well. So it's just to show people how different ways of working, that there's not a, a tick box sheet, it's about having conversations and being flexible around each other's needs, employee and employer, and supporting that self-management and education of colleagues and employers. I mean, that simple example that you gave of somebody being frightened of using a bus because the bus drivers were pulling off. So, I mean, you know, that seems such an easy thing to solve, you know, just, just a word in somebody's ear. Well, that's access to work is primarily quite underused in Scotland and many people don't understand what access to work can offer. I think for small to medium businesses, they are thinking a worst-case scenario about price tags because obviously that's the nature of the business that they run, but it can offer a range of support services. There's the Working Health Services Scotland, which again is a helpline where people at the other end of the phone where they can offer advice. So there is people that can be signposted to different supports. It's just many employers don't know they're out there. Louise Copeland. For more information on the Health and Social Care Alliance Scotland, their website is alliance-scotland.org.uk. Working Health Services Scotland can be found at healthyworkinglives.com and healthyworkinglives, no gap, treated as one word, healthyworkinglives.com. 
and to get details of the Access to Work scheme for England, Wales and Scotland and a separate one in Ireland, the address is too long for me to read out, so just put Access to Work into your search engine. All the details of these links can be found on Pain Concern's website, which is painconcern.org.uk. Now, at the start of this edition of Airing Pain, the Clinical Director of the Healthcare Quality Unit of NHS Scotland, Professor Jason Leach, referred to the so-called Glasgow Effect, where people living in the poorer, deprived areas of the east end of Glasgow have a life expectancy of at least 15 years less than those living in the affluent, leafy areas to the west. So, if this is an example of the link between deprivation and ill health, and not everyone agrees that this is the whole story, that other social factors and environmental issues come into play, then... What's the solution? The solution, unfortunately, is societal, not individual sectors. So the healthcare system can't fix that. It can contribute to the fix, but it can't fix it by itself. So it's multifactorial, it's about employment, it's about growth, it's about bananas in the streets, it's about green space, it's about safe schools, it's about addiction. It's clearly about healthcare delivery. Of course it is. It's about provision of appropriate healthcare delivery in those communities. Not forgetting the middle class community requires healthcare delivery too. But it's also about the broader elements of tackling those inequalities in a meaningful way in multiple sectors. Integrating health and social care. I saw a wonderful example recently in Perth where they've brought together services inside a school where there are addiction services, learning disability services, health and social care services and education all in the one campus. That doesn't fix it instantly but at least the professionals are in the one place talking to each other so there isn't a quick fix for that deprivation makes chronic disease worse but we need to analyze it and work out exactly how we can 